It's a Mailbag Monday. Which top prospects were most impacted by last week's non-tender decisions? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, award-winning baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. We're proudly part of the Locked on Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode's made possible by our friends at FanDuel. Score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook right now. New customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Visit fanduel.com slash locked on to get started. We saw on Friday the non-tender deadline come and go, and 63 players across baseball were non-tendered contracts on Friday evening. And Quick refresher, if a lot of us here are prospectors, we don't always pay attention to the major league stuff. These are all players who are still in those first six years of team control. Usually they're arbitration eligible. And the team decided we're not going to tender you a contract because that means we have to go to arbitration and we don't necessarily think you're worth the projected arbitration salary you're going to get. And Oftentimes on that on non-tender day or the night before, you see a lot of trades happen that can change things for some top prospects. And there's two specifically that I, I noticed uh, have impacted guys that we were expecting to have a good shot at starting the year next year in MLB. And the first one is Colson Montgomery of the Chicago White Sox. Late Thursday night, I believe it was right around, I want to say midnight, Eastern time, the Atlanta Braves announced a five-player package going to the Chicago White Sox, getting reliever Aaron Bummer in return. And that package was right-hand pitcher Michael Soroka, left-hand pitcher Jared Schuster, which, fun fact, if they're both in the rotation, combined with the fact that Tuki Toussaint finished the year in Chicago, that means that three of the five pitchers in that rotation will be former Atlanta Braves pitchers. Uh, And then infielder Nicky Lopez infielder Braden Shoemake, and a minor league pitcher. And Lopez and Shoemake are why Colson Montgomery may not start the year in the majors. So injury-filled year last year, a reminder, he was dealing with oblique issue, became a back issue, and he made it back, but it wasn't a full season. The longest stint that he got was a 37-game stint in AA, and he played well. 244, 400, 428, four home runs, 14 extra base hits, 25 walks to 36 strikeouts, and over one on stolen bases. Colson Montgomery goes to the Arizona Fall League, and the stat line, the, the batting average is exactly the same in those 20 games. 244, and he bats 300, 415 is the rest of the slash line. Three home runs and six extra base hits, six walks to 27 strikeouts. Uh, and I was thinking as he went into the Arizona Fall League, they're making sure he's good to go. And he's probably going to open the year in Chicago, especially after they non-tendered Tim Anderson. And watching the Arizona Fall League action, he didn't look that great to me. He looked, he was like he was really stiff, 
was trying to pull balls for power a little bit too much. He was stiff enough where it almost looked like he was trying to play with a back brace on. But now you look at this trade, where Nicky Lopez and Braden Shoemake come over from the Braves to the White Sox. Nicky Lopez, the Braves got him at the trade deadline from the Royals for, I believe, a minor league pitcher. And I believe it was from the start of 2021 until the trade deadline last year, Nicky Lopez was the most valuable infield defender in baseball from a sheer defensive stats perspective, which we're going to talk about the different defensive stat measure measuring systems later in the show. Uh, can play second, can play short, can play some third. Obviously, guy got squeezed out in Kansas City because you've got Nicky Lopez, you've got Bobby Witt Jr., Michael Garcia, and all those other guys. But he comes over, he can immediately step into the starting shortstop role without an issue for, for the White Sox. And then Braden Shoemake was a draft pick for Atlanta out of AAA, I'm sorry, out of Texas A&M, and stalled offensively in AAA. But he's a very good defender that can play both second and short and probably can play some third base as well. And so now you have a major league proven defender in Nicky Lopez who can play shortstop. You have a guy in Braden Shoemake who is ready for his call up. He spent multiple seasons at AAA. He can come up and play uh, second base. He can fill in at shortstop or whatever. And so. For Colson Montgomery now, it buys the White Sox some time to make sure he's fully healthy. You can probably do some service time manipulation and keep him down next year just long enough to to not let him get a full year of service time in 2024. And then you obviously have the ability to move Nicky Lopez to second whenever you're ready to call up Colson Montgomery. And then if you decide, okay, Montgomery's size and frame and everything, he's going to end up being a third baseman, you can move Lopez back to short and kick kick Colson Montgomery out to third base. So I think we, we talked a couple weeks ago about how Colson Montgomery is probably going to break spring training as the starter. I don't think that's the case anymore, simply because you now have a major league option and don't have to rush Colson Montgomery. And now you can manipulate the service time if you want to, which it feels like Chicago is going to do that. Uh, the other guy who probably didn't necessarily love the transactions done on Friday, is infield prospect Ryan Bliss of the Seattle Mariners. So they trade Paul Seawald to the Arizona Diamondbacks at the the trade deadline, and they get back multiple players. They get back an outfielder, they get back infielder Josh Rojas, and they get back prospect Ryan Bliss. And in Bliss's 128 games last year, multiple different levels, right? He plays double A in the Arizona system, a brief cup of coffee in triple A in the Arizona system, and then gets moved to Seattle and is playing triple A in Seattle. So he plays in Amarillo, then he plays in Reno, then he plays in Tacoma. Uh, In those 128 games, 304, 378, 524 for Ryan Bliss. 23 home runs, 65 extra base hits in 128 games. 58 walks to 119 strikeouts, and 55 of 70 on stolen bases. And he goes to the Arizona Fall League, 19 games, nothing necessarily groundbreaking as far as stats. Batted 239, didn't hit any home runs, had three extra base hits, 14 walks, 21 strikeouts, 10 of 13 on stolen bases. But he does win, I believe it was at second base, he went, he's on the all-defense team 
for the Arizona Fall League as given out by MLB Pipeline. And so you felt, okay, there's a possibility he's now got 60 games under his belt in AAA. There's a possibility he gets to compete for the starting third ba- uh, for the starting second base job uh, in spring training with the Mariners. And he still might be able to, but there was a trade with the Boston Red Sox, a 40-man roster trade where Boston had to clear space. They sent infielder Luis Urias to the Seattle Mariners. So now the Mariners have Luis Urias. They already had Josh Rojas, who they got from Arizona and who played second base almost exclusively after he came up last year, despite being uh, playing a lot of third base in Arizona the last couple seasons for them. And so now that's one more player that, that Ryan Bliss has to compete with to get the second base job. I don't think Ryan Bliss is going to have the opportunity to be the starting shortstop. They gave him 41 games at short in AAA after the trade. Seattle did. Committed nine errors, and it, it really feels like he's, he's a defensive second baseman who gives you good, good contact ability, a surprising amount of power for his frame. I'll remind you, he is a short king, listed at 5'6", and plenty of speed, good defense. He does have the edge, I feel like, over Urias and Rojas from a speed perspective and probably from a defensive perspective as well. But obviously, they have the the fact that they're veterans who have been in the major leagues for multiple years. And so they have a bit of incumbency over Ryan Bliss. So a little bit tougher to for him to break camp as the starter. Another player he has to compete with now. And again, you could see Seattle... Also, even if he is heads and shoulders above everybody else as the best option, which, short joke, I don't think Ryan Bliss has ever been head and shoulders over anybody. Love you, buddy. But uh, it, there's still a possibility of them keeping him down until after not only uh, enough time has passed where he wouldn't get a year of service time, but potentially even keep him down past the Super 2 deadline before you finally brought him up. In just a minute, had a couple questions uh, about different players. One of them... Gabriel Gonzalez, where did he rank in our corner outfield show? And Connor Norby of the Baltimore Orioles. We'll discuss those guys next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. Score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Because right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 money line bet. That's $150 if your team wins. Thankfully, it doesn't have to be the actual team you root for. You can just pick any NFL team. And if you think they're going to win, you can place a $5 bet. And when they win, get your $150 in bonus bets. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, no better time to get in on the action. You can download the app. It's very easy to use. Spend some of your time on Thanksgiving with Better rooting interest in the games on television. You can talk about spreads, player props, over-unders, and all of that. Use the family that's in town to crowdsource some picks as to who we should go for in these games. Visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to kick off the NFL season now with FanDuel, an official partner of the NFL. We dropped our best corner outfield prospects in baseball show late last week. Uh, and got a question for the mailbag about where was Gabriel Gonzalez in relation to where we, uh, we ended on that list. And he was actually the very next player 
on there. So 2021 international free agent out of Venezuela, had a really good Dominican Summer League, came stateside, had a good 22, kept it up in 23. So 2023, 116 games between single A Modesto and high A Everett. So he was both a nut and an aqua sock. In those 116 games, 298, 361, 476 slash line for Gabriel Gonzalez. 18 home runs, 45 extra base hits, 36 walks to 89 strikeouts, and 10 for 10 on stolen bases. Now, the thing you need to know about Gabriel Gonzalez is, yes, he stole 10 bases, but that does not mean he is fast. Gabriel Gonzalez is a slow player. He's listed at 5'10", 165 on baseball reference. That is wrong in multiple ways. He is taller than that. He is heavier than that. And his speed, as he has gotten heavier, his speed has uh, deteriorated to match. I probably would call it 30 to 35 speed. If you wanted to be charitable and give him a 40, that's fine. I admittedly have not hand-timed him. That's I've not seen him in person. Everything I've seen is off of video, and I don't necessarily trust the time off of video. But he is not fast. That is the point. Does have a very strong arm in right field. Probably a 70 grade arm, right? Can absolutely fire a ball in. The thing is, he may or may not catch it on the fly. He may get it on a bounce because the speed is not great. I think defensively, he'll be fine. He, I don't, he's never going to win a gold glove. He will be uh, fringe to average defensively as long as the speed kind of stays where he is. And then again, the arm is going to be useful. The instincts are decent, but as long as he has the athleticism and things like that, you're good. Offensively, obviously, this is what we're here for. It feels like for a power hitter, he has a surprising lack of swing and miss, right? Especially in the strike zone. And I think that's something that stands out when you watch him play. He also uh, is really good at sending balls to the opposite field. Not something you see a lot of young players do. Now, there are downsides for Gabriel Gonzalez. Uh, it feels like he has a significant amount of chase in the game. And something where swing decisions, discipline issue, more so than it's a pitch recognition issue, but just has to get, just has to be less aggressive at expanding the zone, force hitters to come into the zone to attack him, and just has to learn to lay off those balls a bit. But the raw talent is there. Again, the bat speed's really good. The exit velocities are fantastic. The ones that we get that people have passed along to me. And you throw him a strike, he's going to demolish it. The issue is he's not disciplined enough to make you throw him enough strikes. I think if he does that, and there's a lot of ifs that have to happen here in this profile, but the 90th percentile outcome for Gabriel Gonzalez is a big, powerful right fielder, again, with a cannon for an arm that can hit tons of tanks, can bat fourth, can bat fifth. I think stylistically, this is not a direct comparison, we don't do comps on this show, but stylistically, it reminds me a lot of watching a guy like a Jorge Soler. And I think there's a career path there as long as the speed does not continue to get worse. If it does, you're then going to be looking at a guy who's going to need to be a DH, and if he plays in the field, it's going to hurt you defensively like you look at a guy like a Cal Schwarber. So we'll see what happens there. Another question I got, uh, talking about top 100 prospects, why was Connor Norby, why is he not considered a top 100 prospect? Because offensively, 
the numbers are there. And so for context here on this, uh, Connor Norby, which to recap on this, 2021 second rounder out of Eastern Carolina, made it to AAA by the end of 2022. Now it was only for two weeks, but he made it his first full season in the bigs. He made it to AAA, spent all year in AAA in 2023 in those 138 games for Connor Norby. 290, 359, 483, 21 home runs, 64 extra base hits in 138 games. So just under one every other game. 57 walks to 137 strikeouts in 10 of 14 on stolen bases. And when the question was asked, one of the things was, is it because of his defense? And I think that defensively, he's not helping himself get into that top 100, right? Uh, He's a guy, it's mostly second base and corner outfield. In Norfolk last year, they used him like 800-something innings at second. And then he got like 20-something, I think it was 30 starts in the outfield. He got exactly one start at shortstop, but he's not a shortstop. A couple DH things, but he's a second baseman who can kick out to the corner outfield. But he's really here for to hit baseballs, right? That is his job. That is what he's here to do. Again, not a comp because we don't do comps, but he reminds me of a Brandon Lowe of the Tampa Bay Rays, right? Second base can kick out to the outfield, uh, but he is a bat first guy. And so from a positional value standpoint, he doesn't have absurd power where you need to, where he's going to uh, give you the production you need from a DH spot. Uh, And so he's going to have to play the field. And second base is really the place he has to be simply because his his hands are fine. His arm isn't great. And so he can't mo- kick out to, sec- to short or third. The range is okay. I think his speed's perfectly average. But it's something where he's very good at hitting p- balls in the zone. Good job with controlling the strike zone. Doesn't expand a ton. Just continues to hit and hit. Can drive the ball the other way, similar to Gabriel Gonzalez. I love that about it. And then has gotten better recently about elevating balls uh, to hit more fly balls, hit more home runs, things like that. But defensively, you're limited. And then you have the issue of he's behind so many other guys in Baltimore. I don't see where you fit Connor Norby into the lineup unless you get rid of somebody ahead of him, right? As far as him not being a top 100 prospect, when you are a second base only guy, it's a lot tougher to break that top 100 list. And and the guys who you do see on there, the first one that I can think of going down a bit is probably Michael Bush of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And if you think about it, he hit the list because of just absurd power in the minors. But again, he was also stuck in AAA almost all year. He didn't do well in his major league call-up. Trying to think about other second basemen in there. Curtis Mead, I think, is still technically a prospect and is usually playing second base. You're looking at a hit tool that's a 70 grade or so, right? So both of those guys who are on the top 100 list have an outstanding, spectacular offensive tool. Whereas Connor Norby is it's above average hit tool, it's above average power, but nothing single-handedly is a carrying tool, right? He is a sum of all, he is a offensive sum of all parts guy. And in that kind of situation, it's not necessarily a top 100 profile. 
because if one thing slacks a bit, the entire, most of the offensive value falls apart. Whereas if you take a Curtis Mee with a 70 hit tool and his hit tool backs up a bit, it's still a plus hit tool. So I think that's why you don't see Connor Norby in top 100 lists. In just a minute, had a question about defensive statistics, some of the the differences in the different ones and why guys will be good on one and bad on the others. We'll talk about that next right here on Locked on MLB Prospects. Welcome back to Locked on MLB Prospects. Doing our mailbag. We do this every single Monday. If you have questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us. Uh, We have a Discord. We have a subtext. It's all in the episode description. It's all in the show notes. So, question that I got was, uh, somebody was looking at the Atlanta Braves and Austin Riley, and they saw a discrepancy in DRS and UZR. And so, what's the difference here? Okay, so for defensive statistics... You have defensive run saved, you have ultimate zone rating, and then now we also have outs above average. They all come from different places. Fangraphs uses UZR. I believe Baseball America is using DR. Baseball Reference is using DRS. MLB StatCast uses outs above average. So what DRS and UZR, what they are, they're using the same initial information, and it's just... Slight tweaks on how defense is calculated using that information. Baseball Info Solutions has play-by-play data, and both DRS and UZR break it out into buckets. All balls hit to a certain part of the field go into this bucket or that bucket. The buckets are bigger with UZR than DRS, and the people who make use who have used UZR say that the, the data is not granular enough to support smaller buckets. The DRS folks think otherwise. They have 260 different directional vectors. Not sure how many UZR has, but it's less than DRS. And the idea here is, for every ball in that bucket, how often is that ball fielded for an out? So if it's fielded, and this is simplified, obviously. Nobody really understands defensive statistics, but... If that ball is fielded 60% of the time for an out, then if you make that play, you get 0.4 points, right? Because that's the difference. That's how many players don't make it. You get credit over those players that do. If you miss it, you get penalized more because that play is made more than average, right? Now, there's different, again, the formulas are different here. There's just little minute differences in exactly how it's calculated. Um, some sabermetric people prefer the small differences of, U- of UZR to the differences of DRS or vice versa. It's a matter of preference more so than objective measurements. And then they're each used to calculate war. And that's why Fangraph's war and baseball reference war are different. That's not necessarily one's wrong or the other's not wrong, but it's how they do it. I know some of the differences... DRS, for instance, they have uh, batted ball timer data, right? So they have how hard the ball was was hit, how long the fly ball carried, things like that, to try to figure out the likelihood of, say, a third baseman, in this case, Austin Riley, making the play. I know that DRS tends to be more extreme as far as a positive or negative score, while while UZR 
kind of has a smaller spread. And a lot of it sometimes depends on positioning. And positioning does matter, right? UZR looks at, tries to look at, instead of just the directional vector, a similarly batted ball, not qu- it's not quite exact, right? It's, all, it's using the same data, but it's not quite exact. Uh, in my opinion, what I seem to get a better idea of is outs above average from StatCast. And the way that's different from the other two, and I like how they do this, outs above average uses the fielder's distance from the ball. So it, it, it accounts for positioning, right? If you're a third baseman who's playing far off the line and most balls up the line are caught for outs, but you don't get it, DRS and UZR are probably going to penalize you because that play is usually made by a third baseman even though you were positioned farther off. Or I've seen things before where when you have a strong defender, the guy next to him sometimes gets penalized because there's balls that the typical, say, third baseman would have gotten that this defender didn't get. But in his case, it's because the strong defender next to him made the play. And I think that's what in UZR with Austin Riley, going back to the original question, is Dansby Swanson often made so many plays that a typical third baseman would have made, but Austin didn't have to because Dansby was there and the different calculations ding him more in one than the other. But for me, I like outs above average because it goes back to your distance from the ball. So positioning's taken into account, say a fly ball to left field, they look at how much distance did you have to carry and how much time did you have to make the play? So a fly ball to left field, you were positioned here, so that ball was going to land 23 feet away from you. How many outfielders can make, can cover that 23 feet in time to make the play? And by using distance from you and not how far you ran, it also, if you have a bad enough route, then you, it understands that, hey, you didn't make this play when you should have made this play. Uh, I've seen some plays that are like diving catches and it looks really impressive. It's on the highlight reels and everything. And you go back and you look at it. So that was like an 80% catch probability. He probably should not have had to dive for that ball, but he took a bad route. He had a bad read. He had a bad reaction. He had a bad, bad jump, whatever it may be. I actually prefer outs above average because it, I feel like it does a better job of taking in positioning. And again, for the, for the infielders, it's looking at how far you have to go to field the ball, how much time you have to get to that spot, and then how far you are from the base the runner's heading to. So again, it's accounting for the positioning of the infielder. I think it's better than the other two, but this is all a matter of personal preference. Real quick, got a question about who am I looking forward to returning from Tommy John? And I think it was more top 100 conversation. He said he noticed that a lot of the top 100 didn't account for pitchers who were out with Tommy John. And so a couple guys that I'm looking at as far as beginning of the season and then some guys who were hoping to get on a mound towards the end of the year. But earlier in the year, Coleman Crow was traded from the Angels to the Mets. Excited to see what he looks like when he gets back onto the mound. Uh, J.R. Ritchie of the Braves, one of their top prospects, had Tommy John soon after the draft or I believe right around draft time. Looked really good uh, in his initial scouting stuff. Want to see him back on a mound. 
And then Kumar Rocker with the Rangers. Obviously, it's been a big story. All the different changes. He was out for a while, you know, got drafted. Uh, didn't look great. Look, mechanics were different. Got hurt. Had Tommy John. I want to see what he looks like when he comes back. How more sound are his mechanics? As you get a little farther into the year, guys who actually had their surgeries in consecutive days in July, I have a somebody shared with me a spreadsheet that tracks all these MLB Tommy John surgeries, and so I've just, I was, I, I I noticed that it's Andrew Painter of the Philadelphia Phillies are talking. We've talked about Andrew Painter, how excited we were for him last year. He had the strain. They tried to rehab him through it. It didn't work out. He didn't have the surgery until July. Sometimes, depending on the timing of the injury, you're best to just go ahead and have the surgery then versus trying to wait and have it and see if you can rehab it because of when you'll be able to return if you have it. There's a good chance Andrew Painter misses the entire year We talk about 12 to 18 months on the rehab. He'll be hitting the 12 months as we roll into August. And so it's unlikely that we see him on a mound at the end of the year, but it would sure be nice to try to get him there. And then Gabriel Hughes of the Colorado Rockies, another high draft pick. We know how Colorado is always hurting for quality starting pitching. I want to see what he can do when he gets back on a mound. So a couple guys looking for there. Another one, Blake Burkhalter of the Atlanta Braves. Looked really good in spring training. A guy that I've actually met him personally, know him. Want to see what he looks like when he gets back. He was a reliever that they talked about converting to starting, but uh, fastball cutter kind of guy. You would talk about Spencer Strider, that fastball slider. Atlanta found a fastball cutter guy. He learned the cutter from Tim Hudson and was running the fastball up to 99 or so before he got hurt. Want to see what he looks like when he gets back. One, what does the velocity do after the rehab? And then how are the mechanics different? That's always the big thing for me is how are the mechanics different when guys come back? And that's part of the reason Atlanta traded Michael Soroka is because when he adjusted his mechanics to be more biomechanically sound, his stuff didn't have the same movement. His stuff hadn't come back yet. And they didn't have the runway to let a guy who didn't have any options uh, be in the rotation for a while in Atlanta and try to figure it out this season. Fantastic week this week. We're going to have shows all five days, including Thanksgiving, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, again, you got questions for us. All of the links are in the episode description in the show notes. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. Lots of ways to get them to us. Until next time, remember, it's always a great time to pay a minor league.